It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, and welcome to the December 2020 edition of Outward. I'm Ramon Alam, and I'm done. I'm calling it. I know there are still days to go, and we have every reason to believe that something bad might yet happen to us. But while the year might not be done with me, I am done with 2020. So if you need me, I will be here eating Christmas cookies. <laughs> that is completely fair. Uh, I'm Brian Lauder, the editor of Outward, and if you need me in the next few weeks, I'll be riding out the rest of 2020 on the island of Misfit Toys, which in the years since the events of Rudolph has become a chic queer resort and spa. I'm Christina <laughs> Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm ending the year on a high note because this week, my trivia team, Do You Queer What I Queer?, won second place <gasps> in our local Dyke Bar's virtual trivia tournament. Second place out of, I might mention, about 30 teams. While we were very proud, it was still a, a little bit of a tough loss, made better only by the fact that the winning team was called Labia Menorah. <laughs> I hope the victors are having a very, very happy Hanukkah this week. Congrats to Labia Menorah. Congratulations, yeah. That is incredible. All right, uh, first up this month, we will honor World AIDS Day, which is December 1st, by speaking with Ruth Coker Burks, the author of a remarkable new memoir about her work caring for gay men in Arkansas in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Ruth was not a doctor, a nurse, or a social worker, or even queer herself. She was just someone who felt called to help people who needed helping in a community that would rather they didn't exist. And her story adds a crucial new piece to our understanding of the darkest moment in the ongoing HIV pandemic. Then we'll test the holidays with a look at a handful of the many new queer Christmas movies out this year, including Hulu's Happiest Season, Netflix's A New York Christmas Wedding, and Lifetime's The Christmas Setup. Ah, the gift of representation. Do we love it, or are we looking for the receipt? (laughs) And after that, we'll wrap up with a special year-end update to the gay agenda. But first, as always, it's time for a round of pride and provocations. Uh, Christina, I think I know what you're going to have this month, but let's, (laughs) let's hear it. I am proud this month. I was filled with pride and more specifically gratitude for Elliot Page when he came out as trans and non-binary earlier this Mm -hmm. month. So Elliot Page, for those of you who have been living under a rock, was nominated for an Oscar for Juno and has generally been a very valuable and out um, queer celebrity and has done a lot for visibility. And one of the reasons why his coming out filled me with such pride was because of the letter that he wrote to announce his new name and new pronouns. He had one line that I thought really spoke to this moment where rising trans visibility and representation has been met with rising backlash to Mm -hmm. trans rights. And he addressed people who are, you know, saying, like, why am I being castigated for my transphobia, basically? And he just said, yeah, "Yeah, you're not being canceled. You're hurting people. And that was such a beautifully simple way of putting, of laying out the stakes here, where, you know, some people are trying to spin transphobia into, like, some kind of free speech issue. But really, it's just about treating people with respect. And I also wanted to call out my, not call out. (laughs) I wanted to <laughs> give, a, give a hat tip to my colleague, uh, Evan Urquhart, who's trans and wrote a great piece for Slate called No, Elliot Page is Not Abandoning Lesbians, because there mm-hmm. were a few lesbians out there, you know, all the usual suspects who were saying things like, oh, it's so sad that we're losing a lesbian. And 
Elliot's coming out as a lesbian meant so much to me. It's so sad that he's trans mm-hmm. now. He pointed out that this reaction is obviously rooted in transphobia and in the idea that Elliot's coming out is somehow a rejection of lesbianism or womanhood rather than an embrace of his own identity. But what I really liked about Evan's piece was that he talked about how transmasculine and lesbian communities in real life and not in the um, you know imaginary world that transphobes would like to paint are actually very intersecting and intertwined. Right. And it's really right. easy for a lot of people to understand uh, instinctually, I think. And so it's not only transphobic, but also inaccurate to imply that broadly transmasculine people are somehow abandoning or rejecting lesbians when they decide to transition and then to respond by abandoning or rejecting them in return. So to end this pride, I would also like to say that I'm proud of the lesbian community that has been, as Evan writes, choosing inclusivity over exclusivity for a very long time. So I have a, it's sort of a, it's a provocation, but it's a sad provocation. Um, I just learned that the storied queer compound, let's call it, called the Parliament House in Orlando, Florida has closed. So if you haven't heard of it, the Parliament House is this sort of old school um, style of of gay establishment that is both a hotel, a dance club, a um, a drag theater, a leather, it has a leather shop, it has like a pool. It's just like, it's got every sort of every single kind of like exclusively gay business that that was sort of invented in like the seventies or, or, you know, thereabouts um, in one spot. So you would, you would go in and, and you pay a cover to sort of come in and then all of these various kinds of things are going on there. And I uh, was introduced to it when I went down to Orlando to report on the fallout from the Pulse Massacre. I actually stayed there because I heard that it was, it was sort of one of the centers of, of queer life in town. And that is indeed true. And it is, it was, it was just a magical sort of throwback, but still very vital at that time place. And it just, it, you know, I saw some of the most beautiful, you know, instances of, of grief that, that were happening there when I was in town, um, but also joy and, and uh, just sort of <laughs> queer magic generally. I mean, it was just such a weird little special place. They say they will be potentially reopening in a new location. You know, who knows if that's will happen, but Regardless, so even if that does happen, this particular spot was um, just just sort of, to me, hallowed ground mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, sorry for for the Orlando community that's losing that, or really the larger sort of Central Florida community, because yeah. people come from all over this losing that. And also for you know, so many of our so many of our places are suffering this year and, and closing. And and that's a that's a that one hurts me personally because I I really felt lucky to get to see it. So yeah. Um, that's disappointing. It's the kind yeah. of thing that you can't necessarily pick up and replicate in a mm-hmm. new geography. And, no way. <laughs> you know, it's certainly <laughs> yeah. this, the kind of thing that Zoom is not able to provide. Ruman, how are you feeling? Well, I'm, I'm also feeling proud this month, and I'm also feeling proud of a celebrity, albeit in a very different context. <laughs> um, Harry Styles appeared on the cover of the December issue of American Vogue wearing a dress. Predictably enough, crackpots like Candace Owens kind of threw a fit um, on social media talking about real men and, you know, the usual sort of culture war boilerplate. You know, Harry Styles is a rich, adorable, famous rock star. It sort of costs him very little to put on a dress. It's not an act of personal risk in the same way that it is for so many people. But I do think it matters. The fact that the sort of culture war players can even try and stoke controversy around something like this reminds us how silly and feeble our notions of masculine and feminine are, and Mm -hmm. that there are people who really are clinging to them. And while it's sort of provoking and irritating to see um, celebrities who don't really have any risk involved play with this line, there's something about... Harry Styles that I think I think he's doing it in good faith. I think it has to do with him being a younger person and representing a way that younger people, his fan base, actually do think about sex and gender 
uh, more fluidly and less fussily than yeah. their parents did. And I appreciate that. And I do think that that particular visibility really matters. I think about the little kid who is at the checkout with his parents and seeing that in the grocery store and what that might mean to them. And I think that that's kind of a lovely thing to think about. And so, and also Harry Styles is cute as a button. So I feel proud. <laughs> like, I just feel proud about that. I think that that kind of thing matters. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In 1986, Ruth Coker Burks was visiting a friend in the hospital when she overheard another patient feebly calling for help. She went to him, realizing the nurses wouldn't. He was dying of AIDS, and his room was sealed off like a biohazard. This was a period when the disease was new and poorly understood, and those ministering to AIDS patients often wore head-to-toe protective gear. That patient Ruth overheard was calling out for his mother. And Ruth did something extraordinary, but also simple and human. She phoned the man's mother. When that woman declined to come visit her ailing son, Ruth sat with him as he died. All the Young Men is Coker Burke's memoir of that moment and what followed, a period in which a young single mother with no medical training and no personal connection to the community, primarily gay men, ravaged by the disease, became an outspoken AIDS activist in the tiny city of Hot Springs, Arkansas. It's a useful document of the ways in which one person really can make a difference through stubbornness. It's also an important reminder of our very recent history. Ruth Coker Burks lived to bear witness, as so many of the men that she writes about did not. We're so happy that Ruth was able to join us today. Ruth, welcome to Outward. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. The first thing that I wanted to ask you about that I thought was so striking is that in the cultural imagination, when we conjure the crisis of AIDS in this country, we think about New York City, we think about San Francisco, but of course, disease doesn't have any borders. Were there particular challenges to you in dealing with AIDS in the South? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I, I don't know that it could have been a worse place. I mean, I'm sure it could have, but it was brutal back then. And it came from the pulpits of the churches. They thought that that was God's punishment for gay men for having that lifestyle, and they would preach it from the pulpits. Mm -hmm. This is what happens to you if you're perverted, if you're whatever. This is God's punishment, and this is how you die. Ruth, you write so beautifully about being Christian and that informing, I think, why you chose to do this work or felt called to do this work. How did you sort of square that with what you were hearing from the pulpit. You know, I had heard, you know, God wants us and Jesus wants us to love the sick, love the poor, you know, take care of people. So I had grown up that way. So we would hear from the church, you know, go out and feed the hungry and do all this and that and the other. And that lasted just as long until the club cafe opened for lunch. Mm -hmm. And then everybody left and they left the sermon at the church. Well, I took my daughter out and, you know, we took lunches to people that were homebound instead of sitting in a restaurant eating after church, talking to the same people we'd just seen for two hours. Mm -hmm. I thought that the Mm -hmm. leaders of the community, if I let them know, look, we have these people who are dying and I let the pastors and the dot, I just thought, yay, I'll go tell everybody and they'll go, wow. Yeah, we're waiting to help these people. Where are they? We'll go help them. Yeah. They never came. They I felt like in the movie Dances with Wolves where Kevin Costner's uh character goes out on the western front to uh you know, wait for the cavalry to mm-hmm. come and he cleans up this little fort and he does all this work and he finally realizes the cavalry is not coming. He's it. And that's kind of that's exactly how I was, yes. And a lot of these people whose cruelty that you document, I mean, they were your neighbors and they were 
sitting next to you in the pews. They were doctors and nurses who refused to care for the sick. I mean, how did that change the way you saw your neighbors and and your community? Oh, it changed it a lot. Yeah, I was just shocked. I could not believe that there were human beings who could walk past someone who was obviously dying, obviously weighed less than 100 pounds, and throw them to the side and put their trays of food on the floor in the hospital for them to eat. So what actually happened is that you met this one patient that became a kind of, it's just sort of spiraled from there. You met other patients, you met other people negotiating with AIDS, you learned a little bit about the disease, you felt an impulse to share what you knew with people who may not have known what it was they were themselves suffering from. Did you consider that a form of activism? Because you weren't connected to an organization. You were just sort of one woman feeding people and teaching them how to get social security benefits. Do you think of yourself as an activist now? Did you think of it then? Or did you see it more as sort of mission work? It was a mission. I just decided that, you know, that was what God must have wanted me to do. You write really beautifully about this gay bar um, called Our House um, that you sort of are introduced to a little bit, like I think maybe three or four years into into this uh, period. Um, and there's drag there. Um, there's this whole community there that you sort of meet. I just wonder if you could just describe for our listeners what that place was like, because it just sounds so incredible. Oh, it was so divey. I mean, it, <laughs> you felt like you needed to wipe your shoes off before you walked out the door. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just from all the stuff spilled on the floor. And it was just, it. I think it was an old uh, filling station, a gas station. Mm-hmm. And it looked like it had been burned to the ground and built back up a couple of times. It was just magical. The people in there were just incredible. And I thought, oh, my God, I found my people. I would show up for Sunday school every Sunday morning smelling like bar smoke (laughs) because my hair is really, really thick. And uh, it would take me two hours to blow it out in the morning. And so I would put it up in a French braid and, you know, I had on clean clothes, but I didn't realize I reached the bar smoke. (laughs) And they didn't know which bar it was. They just knew I'd been out at a bar. Mm -hmm. And but I was there every Sunday with my daughter. So you think I got a little extra credit for that. So you talk about the men who were regulars at the bar, but a lot of the men you cared for actually didn't live in Arkansas. They had maybe been born and raised there, but moved away. And why did they come back? If you have two nickels to rub together, you get on a bus or whatever you can, and you right. get out of Arkansas mm-hmm. or the South or Iowa or Indiana, wherever it is, you leave the center of the country and you go to the coast where, you know, life is. And then, you know, they would have a wonderful life and it would be everything they ever wanted. And they had a great job and they had a great, you know, social life. And then it started hitting their friends Mm -hmm. and then their friend would die and they would go and stay with another friend and take care of them until they died. And Mm -hmm. so they would kind of couch surf their way back to Arkansas because all of their friends had died and they didn't have any place else to go. And they knew they knew that their family would take them in if they would just show up on that front porch, their mama would open her arms and say, honey, I've been waiting for you to come home. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. Mm. They didn't. And it was so horrible and heartbreaking and uh, disappointing. Just every word you want to add to it. And so they came home and they ended up with me. And uh, so I just loved them and took care of them and, you know, everything I could to make them the last part of their life, the best part of their life as I could. You write about going to D.C. and being part of a task force with a lot of people from, you know, major cities, the coast, and you notice that their understanding of gay lives and the needs of people with AIDS was a lot different from yours, which was informed by, obviously, men in the South. Tell me what they were missing and what they didn't understand about the men that you were caring for. 
I was up and I was part of the committee that uh, wrote the Ryan White Comprehensive Care Act. Said we have got to get them on Social Security. I said, and their families, their children will get a check too. And they, this one man, I mean, he just he had the little wire glasses and just very stereotypical of the older gay men back in the days. And he looked at me in that meeting and he goes, honey, I guess you just don't understand. Gay men don't have children. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, yes, they do. In the Mm -hmm. South, they do. Mm -hmm. And in the rest of the country. I just want to end by asking the thing, the lesson that you feel like we should take away from this book and this and the, the crisis that you're writing about, whether that relates to the crisis of the current moment or just generally, like, what is, do you think, the lesson that you learned and that you want readers to learn? To step through your fear. If you have any fear, just you have to be brave and step through it. Walk through that door. And we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We are. That's just the way it is. And we weren't put on this earth to walk it alone. And the gay community was desperate to find out how to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And a condom worked. It was Mm -hmm. as simple as using a condom. We just need to use a mask. You know, you can find your family anywhere. And you have to know that. And you just have. I wasn't looking necessarily. Well, I was looking for a family. I was. And I thought my church was my church family, and they weren't. Mm-hmm. And who would ever think that a single woman going to a gay bar, you know, a church-going woman would find my family at the gay bar and in the gay community. And y'all have embraced me and taken me in and took my daughter in. And I I could not have been treated any better by any straight people. And I actually think that the gay community are the body of Christ because they're the ones that were thrown out of their churches, thrown out of their families, but still go back to their churches wherever they've made their home church as adults. Our guest was Ruth Coker Burks. She is the author of a new memoir, All the Young Men, a memoir of love, AIDS, and chosen family in the American South. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. So this year seems to have been a tipping point for the queer Christmas movie. The culture hit a lot of absurd sounding but not insignificant milestones. There was Happiest Season, written and directed by queer icon Clea Duvall, which is the first studio-backed holiday rom-com about a queer couple. It's streaming on Hulu. There's also the Christmas setup, which Lifetime's press person told us is the network's first Christmas movie with an LGBTQ holiday romance as its lead storyline. They did clarify that there has been a gay kiss in one of their movies before. (laughs) It, It was last year in a movie called Twinkle All the Way. And last but certainly not least, and you know, this is not an encyclopedic roundup of this year's queer holiday movies. There's a New York Christmas wedding, the real wild card of the bunch. It's a drama. It was written and directed by Atoja Abit, and that is streaming on Netflix. So I love Christmas movies. I love the cheese. I love the cheer. And I enjoyed all of these films for very different reasons, even though some of them were objectively bad. (laughs) So I want to talk about the Christmas setup first, because this one was the most formulaic of the bunch. They basically poured a gay storyline into the lifetime mold and added Fran Drescher. It's like a Mad Lib of holiday movie tropes. A big city gay comes home to Milwaukee for somehow a two-week holiday break from his law firm. (laughs) He encounters an old high school acquaintance who is also gay, conveniently also a millionaire now, but runs a Christmas tree farm because he has a big heart. (laughs) And they basically band together to save an old train station. Brian, word on the street is that 
you freaking love this movie. I did. And I will say that um, I am very steeped in the lifetime hallmark extended cinematic universe <laughs> of, of sort of Christmas narrative. So I, I love the shape of these movies. I find it very comforting. Yeah. It has its finger on like the urban rural divide totally, or, totally. Yeah. In, in the U.S. right now. I would say it exploits for- that. Yeah, it's and it's been true for a few years. So you have you have this this sort of sit, big city person or person who left home and went to the city and comes back, discovers like a bookshop or a blueberry <laughs> farm or a you know Christmas tree, whatever, and and rediscovers authenticity. Right. This I felt like hit all of those notes, all of the tropes that it, that it needed to hit to sort of fit into the the mold, but also like really pushed the gayness far more forward than I expected. I agree. I really did kind of just expect it to be like a very chaste like kiss. You thought they sh- you thought they'd shake hands. I mean, they yeah. did. Yeah. They there was no sex scene. But there's not sex scenes in Hallmark movies yeah. anyway. Okay. I don't think I don't not... think the men in those movies are allowed to take their shirts off. Lifetime can be a little more salacious, I'd say, and but but generally the, in these Christmas movies, no, there's not sex. But what I mean by by gayness being sort of foregrounded was that for one thing, and we'll talk about this, I think, sort of overall with these movies. Everyone in this movie is already out. Yeah, they're already like well adjusted. That's not like coming out and all of that is not like an issue. Their parents know. Like it, like n- there's no like sort of uh, drama around being gay. The drama is just the normal kind of rom commy can I give up my career for <laughs> for this yeah. man kind of thing. Um, but also, like, like there was a lot of um, innuendo like, yeah. in the first 30 minutes. You know, my dear, beloved mother listens to this podcast, so I'm not going to, like, get into it <laughs> too much. But there is a lot of sex jokes sort of, like, in the script that I don't know that if you weren't gay, you might not get. <laughs> but, like, the, you know, a, a lot about the tree not fitting through the door. I was surprised by how... Um, I don't know, just frank it was about not just not just the fact that they were gay men who fancied each other, but like <laughs> that, that gay culture exists, that the, yeah. like the, the yeah. humor was there. It yeah. just it was a very gay movie. It wasn't it didn't feel like that the lifetime was trying to like, you know, do the, the least that they could. Yeah. They, they sort of did a lot. One of the things that I thought was so startling about this movie is that so the, the protagonist has a brother. And his brother is also home for Christmas. And there's a sense of distance in this fraternal relationship that is not situated in a rejection of his brother's gayness. Right. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a fact, it's a, it has to do with um, their geographical distance that his brother is in the military in some, I can't remember. Yeah. What, they had what to he balance does. out the gay part with like a military story. Yes, line. yes, yes. But it wasn't like labored. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a manly man and mm-hmm. can't know my sissy brother. It was just like, oh, we don't know one another as mm-hmm. adults because mm-hmm. of this distance. And to your point, Brian, about them recognizing that there's a gay world outside of this relationship. I think that's something that's missing from a lot of the worst Mm -hmm. queer movies out there, which really focused it on just like two people falling in love with each other, not recognizing that there's like a culture out there, a history out there, that it's a politicized Mm -hmm. identity. There's an LGBTQ youth center. There's a drag Mm -hmm. king scene. Like they're talking about this entire world outside of themselves that feels way more realistic to gay life than these movies that are a little bit like, oh, I could be anyone, and the person who I happen to love just happens to be of the same gender as me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it really felt like there's you know, a cabal of gays at Lifetime who've just been like chomping at the bit <laughs> for decades, and now they're like, all right, guys, go all out on this one movie. I also just want to note very quickly that the two handsome leads in this movie uh, are actually in a relationship. <gasps> oh, that's so They're husbands. They're husbands. Oh, um, well, that so, makes me love this movie. Yeah. Now. I love yeah, it. So, so just, just note. That is very sweet. <laughs> the romance is real. So one thing that this movie made me realize is that one reason why I like watching queer movies is that I just don't have to spend the whole time being caught in my head thinking about gender roles. Because that is one thing that really takes away from the experience of watching a more traditional rom-com or Christmas movie, is that the whole time I'm thinking about like, ugh, this is so sexist, and why is you know the woman in this subservient role, and why is he opening the doors? I just end up spiraling in my thoughts so much that I can't enjoy it. Like I can either take the stifling cliches 
it are involved with Christmas or the stifling cliches of heterosexuality, <laughs> but like I can't take them both in one sitting. And in a movie like this, you only got one of them. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I was able to just enjoy it in a very pure way. Yeah, I don't think I could watch a straight version of this movie. Oh my God. I don't think Definitely I could negotiate not. with like, you know, those scenes where the the dude has to ask like the girl's father for her hand. Speaking of the asking dads for their blessing, mm. maybe we should talk about Happiest Season It's a good next. transition to Happiest <laughs> Season for sure. It is indeed. So this is definitely the most high profile film of the bunch. It's starring Kristen Stewart. Mackenzie Davis, straight but not narrow. She's played queers in the past. Uh, and Aubrey Plaza, who's bi. Yes, I need to specify who's LGBT or not in every movie. It's really important to me. Victor Garber, another gay, plays yeah. yes. a dad. Yes. And Mary Steenbergen, a mom. Everyone had a great performance, I thought. Yeah. That was a, a high of this movie. The premise, which June Thomas and I recount in greater detail in a Slate spoiler special episode, please listen, is that Harper, Mackenzie Davis, is closeted. She uh, takes her girlfriend, Abby, played by Kristen Stewart, home for Christmas to a big, beautiful house. Her dad's running for mayor, so they have to both stay in the closet the whole time. And, you know, Harper promises Abby that she's going to come out after Christmas. Abby plans to secretly propose to Harper on Christmas Day because it's her favorite day of the year. There's been some debate at the LGBTQ community, to quote Brittany, (laughs) about this one, in large part because the premise a lot of people have found to be a bit dated or Mm -hmm. offensive because it's about trauma. The person who's closeted, Harper, treats her girlfriend terribly, yet they end up together in the end. I think all of what you say is true, Christina, that like the movie has some some baggage. It's not a sort of wholesale rejection um, of traditional romantic tropes and it doesn't really give the queer characters like their the heat and the love the romance that the right. rom-com necessarily it's not provides a it I would really say. isn't but i also think that you can't discount that representation does matter and that there are people who will turn this movie on expecting it to be a rom-com and maybe confront questions that they had not necessarily thought about before, like how damaging yeah. it might be to actually exist in the closet. So, I mean, yeah, I wish it had been a little different and maybe a little more fun, but you kind of have to take it for what it is, I think. That's such an interesting point or way of putting it, Ramon, because I, I did not like this movie and I and I expected to because I, I like all of the actors. I especially love Aubrey Plaza. And I found the the sort of premise of the conflict to be so upsetting and surprising Mm. that it like caused the dissonance like the the surface of the movie is this very like you know sleek sort of warm rom-com space that we're in like that everybody's dressed in the sweaters and the house is beautiful and like all of that stuff is there but then like what's happening between the family members and between and even in the relationship um between the two main characters is is like was really upsetting to me and like almost like like undermine kind of like that the movie would even happen. So so there's a point um, early on where um, they are going home, and um, you f- we've learned just before this that um, Harper is not out to her family and and has not told this to Abby. And in the car, <laughs> like on the way to the house, she stops and like reveals mm-hmm. this and says not only am I not out not only did I lie to you about being out um, back in, like in the summer or something when she was supposed to have done it uh, but you have to come pretend to be my friend uh, roommate uh, and also you have to pretend to be straight yeah. Yeah. right yeah. like I would have been out of that car in like an uber so fast like it's <laughs> that's like it I don't see how you could continue on with that person anymore so the, the rest of the movie kind of doesn't even happen to me because yeah. of that yeah. and then you know I, i'll stop ranting but like you get to to the ending and it like it's you know this harper person is just messed up she's, <laughs> like, a, she's like, awful yeah so what happens at the end is basically um it's revealed that harper in high school had been dating uh, aubrey plaza's character and then was confronted about this and set and basically through uh, her girlfriend under the bus was just like, I'm not a lesbian. What are you talking about? This person tried to seduce me. You know, the classic sort of a- evasion. Panic. 
gay panic, right? And then she literally does the same thing to her current to Kristen Stewart at at the end, sort of in the, in the climactic moment at the end of the movie again. And so it's like this person has learned nothing. Yeah. Um, does this this real violence? I mean, it was just so upsetting mm-hmm. to me yeah. to see it happen. And then, as Christina said, like they end up back together again. And not only that, but then at the end, but Harper's the way she sort of makes up for it at the end is by saying like, "My family doesn't matter. I'll I'll leave them." Which like, no, actually, that you don't need to do that either. Like, it it doesn't have to be like, "Oh, you're my entire family now." Um, That was sort of an intense way to end it. Yeah, it just struck it struck me that this person is not ready for a relationship. I agree with everything that you just said, Brian. And yet, I came away really liking the movie. I think I evaluated it differently than you did. So I evaluated it as like a Christmas movie first and a mm. queer rom-com second. Like I actually don't think it should have been considered a rom-com. Calm, mm, sure, mm-hmm. but with an undercurrent of tragedy and horror, not unlike Get Out, I think. And in fact, Dan oh, Levy yeah. plays a similar sort of best friend character that's sort of like got the wool off his eyes all along and is telling her, like, get out of this fucking house. This, this family is traumatizing you. I liked that it was the inverse of the big city coming home story where <laughs> yeah. it's not like you're a, you know, a big city person who's become alienated from everything that's important to you. And then you come home to your small town and realize what love is. It's like, no, you're a, you're a city gay. You come home and realize how alienating it is to be in a small town with all yeah. these homophobes. Art doesn't have to be perfect and queer art doesn't have to be perfect. I just love looking at Kristen Stewart and Aubrey Plaza. And that's like, <laughs> 95 minutes absolutely well spent and there's a lot of charm to be had here it's not citizen kane but that doesn't mean that it is like an abject failure and i'm really glad that i spent that 95 minutes with this movie whereas our next film oh mm. my god is kind of a whole a horse of another color as they say speaking to our listeners if y'all haven't watched a new york christmas wedding yet mm. do yourself a favor this is the rare <laughs> terrible movie that I think everyone should see. Agreed. Words really can't express how bananas this movie is just to lay out the bare bones of the plot. There's a woman named Jennifer who is about to marry a man played by writer director Atoja Abit. She is then taken by her guardian angel whose identity we will reveal later to an alternate (laughs) universe in which not only is her dad alive for some reason, uh, sort of like um, implying that she should be implicated in his death, uh, (laughs) but in this alternate universe, she ends up with her childhood best friend who she was in love with, who was a woman named Mm -hmm. Gabby. It's sort of low-key a movie about homophobia in the Catholic church, which was a surprise to me. Chris Noth of all yeah, people. Yeah. Represented by Mr. Big. He's as... a, a <laughs> priest who comes to believe that love is love and he needs to perform gay marriages in his church. What was your response to this movie? Cause I think I told you before each of you watched it, how wild and abysmal the movie was. Yeah, never, never has a movie been so um, hyped for me by by my <laughs> colleagues, and yet stood up, and, and yet still shocked me. Yeah, still, still managed to. Even though to... you basically knew every single yeah. plot point. Yeah, no, you because you really can't quite. I mean, I, I feel like we're failing our listeners. You should go read Christina's piece because it really does yes, lay it all out absolutely. if you don't want to watch yeah. it. But um, but if not, like it's so hard to explain all the twists and turns. But yeah, I I sort of went in thinking, well, it's on Netflix for one thing. So right. I was like, well, this will be this will be like a quality production. <laughs> you know, it'll it'll be not not that everything on Netflix is great, but just like it'll it'll like reach a certain level. It really doesn't. It's like it's ve- someone else described it as like feeling almost like a like a, a student film yes. project in terms of yes. production, which is that's a little mean, but like it 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 sort of does. Um, but then the the um, let's say metaphysics of it <laughs> um, really really go crazy. I mean, you've got this, you know. Okay, fine. So we're exploring um, what it would have been like if this person had followed their heart, I guess, when mm-hmm. they were when they were younger and 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 become. Um, uh, bi or a lesbian um, it's not entirely clear how we should define that I guess but right this is one of those films where it doesn't address the concept of identity 
at all. But then it veers so quickly from like, uh, what would that life have looked like into, as you say, this this interrogation of Catholic feelings about homosexuality, about uh, abortion. abortion, about, you know, just like, what is it like to be in the church? So I think this is just, it, it's a case of like a, a very ambitious writing project, right? Like a, a writer who really wanted to interrogate a lot and couldn't sort of restrain themselves. Like the the idea on the face of it, of kind of a sliding doors concept, right? Of like mm-hmm. the, the road not taken, the two lives one might've had is actually a really interesting idea if it encompasses a romantic partnership with a woman and a romantic partnership with a man. But as Christina is apoplectic, rightly, the, <laughs> the movie needs to establish a sense of the central figure's identity. If she were understood to be bi at the beginning of the film and that the film was sort of negotiating between these two paths that she might take, that's one thing. What is less clear in the in the resulting film is whether she rejected her own homosexuality mm-hmm. because of a conflict in childhood, which right. itself doesn't make a lot of sense because it's a very banal kind of conflict. Like there's just a lot that's unresolved. You can feel the the, the good intention, but it actually 100%. becomes very unintentionally kind of cruel and like limiting it's a very feeble understanding of queerness so one of the problems here is that the friend with whom she has a falling out uh you know in their teenage years it's like christmas she's gonna uh jennifer is gonna tell gabby that she's in love with her after you know they have all these sort of like platonic romantic moments Um, they have a falling out because Gabby decides to sleep with a man that day and gets pregnant with the fetus who then dies in utero and becomes the guardian angel of Jennifer. Uh, We need to underline that a little bit more. I just want want people to like catch it. Like she gets pregnant. The friend gets, the love interest gets pregnant on this day. This like, you know, (laughs) on Christmas Christmas day, the fetus, yes, the fetus. Dies. She tragically she has died. a she birth at right. she 29 has a, right. weeks pregnant. Thank you. Yes, yes. And yes, and the angel that has come to take our protagonist into the alternate reality is in fact this dead The fetus. now adult Yes, like a 31-year-old version who's of Who's also fetus. now gay. gay. So the fetus <laughs> continued to age yes. in heaven, <laughs> learned to speak, read, ride a bike... <laughs> And become a guardian and, angel. And, like, read, honey. Like, <laughs> like, like, I mean, like, the gay, the gay is strong with this, with this one. Yeah. What's wrong? My soon-to-be in-laws are in town in a... Uh, oh, how soon? Months. Maybe Christmas Eve. That's exciting. Everybody loves a Christmas wedding. Uh... Do you want to talk about it? Nope. Girl, come on. Let it all out. I don't know you. You don't know me. No judgment here. So anyway, back to the friend dying. You could have either had them fight and never speak again or have her die. But the idea that she spent her life regretting not reconnecting with this friend and saying she was in love with her. But then the friend mm. died. So it's like, oh, that chapter should have been closed yeah. because the friend is dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the way the film resolves this point is by then taking the protagonist back. All of a sudden, she's actually allowed to go back in time to right. that fateful day sort of convinces Gabby not to sleep with the man by being supportive. That's a little fun reverse psychology. (laughs) So she never has the stillbirth. So she never dies by suicide. So now is able to live. And it's like, it conflates way too many things. The grief over losing parents and a friend, the grief of unrequited love and the formation of sexual identity in a way that, it felt so far from any like semblance of queer reality that as I wrote in my review, like it doesn't qualify for the program I have where I give extra points to gay movies for being gay. Yeah. This one doesn't get that because I had so much trouble. I can't even qualify it as a queer movie. Actually, the fact that this movie made it to Netflix, which I can hardly believe is a little bit a result of 
the growing acceptance and promotion of queer narratives in mainstream culture. So in previous years, a film such as this would have played at queer film festivals, perhaps become a cult classic that hardly anyone else had ever seen. Now Netflix, you know, who knows who at Netflix sees a film like this and thinks, hey, you know, we really need to elevate these kinds of stories. And isn't this an important story to tell at this moment in time? quality of the film be damned and then it ends up in the a1 space in my netflix feed because netflix knows that i love gay movies and christmas movies and we're left discussing it on this premiere podcast (laughs) (laughs) well this was the highlight of my holiday season so far honestly i want all of our listeners to watch all three films you'll love Mm -hmm. them all for different reasons probably or at least you'll have something to complain about with your friends Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right, that is about it for this month and for this cursed year. (laughs) But before we go, it's Gay Agenda time. Um, And for a special treat this uh, month, we'll be joined by our queer colleagues at Slate to offer a holiday sampler of our favorite (laughs) bits of queer culture from 2020. This is Daniel, the show's producer. And the piece of queer culture that brought me joy this year is actually a full filmography. I have been utterly changed by the works of Spanish filmmaker... Pedro Almodovar. His luscious, sexy, and at times alarming films have affected me in ways I still struggle to articulate. Before August, I'd never seen any of his movies, but thanks to my friend Ingu, I've now watched them all and even started a podcast with her to talk about them. If you need one to start with, I'd say rent Talk to Her or All About My Mother immediately. I am going to break the rules and recommend two supremely joyful items from 2020. The first is Jen Chaplin's amazing book, My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, which is funny and moving and recounts in an understated way all the obstacles queer people have to scramble over to see our history and culture as it really is. And Motherland Fort Salem, an absolutely bonkers and brilliant TV show on freeform about an alternative history of the United States in which women, specifically witches, won the Revolutionary War and have been defending America's freedoms ever since, including, of course, the freedom to be queer. When it comes to joy, I think the best thing that happened in uh, queer culture in 2020 is when Untitled Goose Game released a new version where you could play with a friend as two geese running through an idyllic English village and just ruining everyone's day. It's communism, it's community, it's queerness, it's chaos, it's anti-futurity, it's perfect. I am recommending the 1963 film An Actor's Revenge, which was directed by Kon Ichikawa. It's about a kabuki actor named Yuki Noji, who's an onagata, a male actor who exclusively plays women's roles. And as was common during the Edo period, he dresses as a woman offstage as well. He seeks revenge for the death of his parents and uses his skills as an onagata to trick and deceive those he plans to kill, because even though everyone knows he's a man, 
dressing as a woman, everyone constantly underestimates him, thinking him demure and innocent when he's actually incredibly cunning and cutthroat. It's basically a movie about using drag to get murderous revenge and what could possibly be better than that. The thing that brought me the most queer joy this year, I would say a New York Christmas wedding, but since we already talked about that, I am going to applaud the writer Jordan Firstman's Instagram impressions of straight men. So he's an Instagram celebrity who sort of rose to notoriety during the pandemic by doing impressions of sort of micro categories or micro situations or just like totally fake or contrived circumstances. He does a lot of, you know, very funny. And and I appreciate that they're hit or miss sometimes too. Like you can tell he just puts whatever he thought of out there and sometimes they're great and sometimes they go on too long. But I love when he mocks straight masculinity One of his most recent ones was an impression of a straight guy trying to order French onion soup without sounding gay. So our community is diverse, oftentimes divided. We are far from a monolith. That's what makes us beautiful and strong. But I take comfort in the fact that the one cultural touchstone we all share is making fun of straight cis men. So my favorite bit of queer culture from this year is a little meta, but it was the way that queer creators and queer audiences came together to sort of sustain queer culture during the pandemic. And what I mean by that specifically is all the DJs, the drag queens, the bars doing trivia, all of these different institutions that we can't be you know, in person with right now actually coming together and finding a way through the internet to sort of survive until we can be together again. That was one of the most beautiful things I saw in all of its various forms. Um, And it gives me hope that when this is over, we will all be able to gather again uh, just as strongly as we were before. My highlight for the year and also my recommendation um, for anyone who is shopping for Christmas gifts is a book called Sometimes You Have to Lie. It's by a woman named Leslie Brody, and it is a biography of Louise Fitzhugh. Louise Fitzhugh is the author of Harriet the Spy, seminal childhood classic, secret gay text. If you haven't read it since third grade and you go back and read it now, you will be very surprised by how obvious Harriet's sort of, you know, nascent lesbianism is. And Fitzhugh was a lesbian. She negotiated with that in her writing. She had a very short and tragic life. Brody's book is a really interesting encapsulation of the lesbian vanguard of writers and artists in New York in mid-century. And it's a great document of somebody whose life really should have been documented. On the heels of that veritable charcuterie platter of queer joy from 2020... We'd like to say goodbye to 2020 and goodbye to you. Please keep sending us your feedback. We love to read it. And any ideas you have for things you'd like us to discuss, our email address is outwardpodcast at slate.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. If you like Outward, I know you do. Please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Tell them to subscribe. Rate it. Review it. Make other people find it. Our producer this month is June Thomas. June is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. She's also one of the hosts of the Slate Podcast Working and our gay guardian angel. Outward will be back in your feeds in January. Stay tuned. And happy holidays, you guys. Happy holidays. And you know what? In the words of the gay guardian angel on New York Wedding, (laughs) I just want to leave you with this message. Love deeply, trust your heart, and be brave.